You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. My name is Lawrence Coletti and I am the producer. What you're about to hear took place at our headquarters in Denver, Colorado, where Above the Law held their marijuana law reception. Moderated by the editor, Stacey Zaretsky, this Q&A panel discussion featured a top lineup of experts in the growing and still illegal marijuana industry. Please note that the opinions of the panelists are their own and don't represent those of Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. In addition, although some states are legalizing the marijuana industry at the state level, it is still illegal under federal law, and those that violate it are subject to punishment and penalties, which includes criminal prosecution. The opinions of the panelists are not to be considered legal advice. If you have questions about the marijuana industry, including but not limited to growing, buying, selling, and consuming, we recommend that you consult with a lawyer. That said, we hope you enjoy this event and find its information fascinating and educational. We now cut to introductions by Josh Kappel from Vicente Cedarburg. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming. I mean, how could you not come to a marijuana event at a brewery? So my name is Josh Kappel. I'm a partner at Vicente Cedarburg. We're a law firm primarily dedicated towards marijuana policy and representing marijuana businesses. And we have offices in Boston and Denver and Vegas. And you, some of our attorneys have written a lot of the regulations and a lot of the laws. But really, that's not why I'm here. Why I'm here, you know, where you're like, you don't have a chair. Why are you here? Why I'm actually here is to plug the National Cannabis Bar Association. It's this new association that's being launched with a bunch of attorneys from all over the country, really to provide a community for attorneys who want to practice in this space, who are thinking about dabbling into this space. And, and you may say, why an industry-specific bar association? Well, the thing is, is, as many of you may know, and as these great panelists will talk about, is that everything's illegal. The whole industry is illegal, which, and, and that creates all sorts of unique intellectual legal problems. How do you enforce your contracts? What about your intellectual property? What about your insurance? What about your employment? The, the list of things goes on and on and on. And so in light of you know, this very unique legal industry, you know, we've created, you know, we're launching this National Cannabis Bar Association. And there is a launch party at our law firm's office um, on June 30th. There's flyers back there. And we welcome everyone to attend. The, um, it's right during the week of the National Cannabis Industry Association, which is you know, probably the largest cannabis industry association in the country, maybe the world. There's about 800 members. So if you guys are interested in this space, I'd also recommend attending that conference as well. But in short, if you are interested in the National Cannabis Bar Association, please you know, check out our launch party or check out the website. We're really there just to provide a resource for attorneys who are dabbling or looking to dabble in the space. And so with that, you know, I want to introduce Stacey Zaretsky, the esteemed editor of Above the Law, who is going to moderate this wonderful panel of many folks who I've worked with in one form or another. And so I'll pass off the mic from there. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Again, my name is Stacey Zaretsky. I'm an editor at Above the Law. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the lay of the land here. So as you'll see up there and over there, we have a little screen. And um, if you're going to be tweeting about this, the hashtag is ATLWeedLaw. Um, and apparently that started trending earlier this afternoon, so let's keep it going. So I'm going to introduce all of our panelists, starting right here. This is Tom Downey. He is a director at Ireland Stapleton. 
Next to him is Brian Rudin. He is the owner of three dispensaries, Starbuds, Tree of Wellness, and Ultrameds. Then we have Hillary Bricken. She is the lead attorney of Harris Moore's Canna Law Group. And at the end, we have Professor Sam Kamen. He is a professor at the University of Denver Stern College of Law. So let's get this show on the road. So tell me about yourselves. How did you get into marijuana law? How did you start opening marijuana dispensaries? So let's go down the line. Uh, I'm Tom Downey. Um, I came at this backwards. I've been a regulatory attorney for um, coming up on 25 years. Um, I have to admit, please don't throw anything, um, I've never used marijuana myself, uh, not opposed to it. Uh, but um, in 2011, Mayor Hancock asked me to go into his cabinet to run the licensing department. And so that was my first exposure to marijuana law, um, issuing those licenses, regulating them, and then uh, preparing for um, recreational marijuana and now back in private practice. Um, our firm has been around for almost 90 years, um, full commercial practice. Uh, we have a significant regulatory practice, liquor licenses, Department of Regulatory Agencies, a whole bunch of others, and marijuana is about half of my practice right now. I'm Brian Rudin, and uh, I graduated law school in 2005, and I became a litigator. And then from there, I moved on to tax resolution, which I did for about five years. And in 2010, marijuana became a, a bit more of an industry. We'll, we'll probably talk about the Cole Memo and, and how that really became the start of, of medical marijuana in Colorado. And, you know, I saw an opportunity. It was very uh, pro-cannabis, and I decided to get into the industry and started with the Tree of Wellness, which is a medical marijuana center in Colorado Springs, and we have a grow facility in Denver. And uh, in 2013, I started with a partner of mine, Starbuds, which was at the time medical. And uh, fast forward to 2014, started expanding the company and uh, basically took over a store uh, in Louisville won the one of 24 licenses in the city of Aurora, opened a Starbucks there, uh, just opened one in Pueblo last week, and looking to open another one in Adams County, as well as some other projects. So uh, that's a little bit of my history. Okay, I just want to know in the audience, who's a criminal defense attorney? Can you show me your hands? Who's a business lawyer? Who has pot clients? Gosh, okay, very small. Um, I just like to get to know who's in the audience when we start these things so we know at what level we're kind of addressing the issue. But personally, my story of how I got into this is not half as sexy as the two of you. Um, we had a criminal defense attorney that came to the firm that said, I have this giant book of business and it has everything to do with medical cannabis. And I'm from Florida, and I said, you have to be kidding me, because that's not a real thing. And he said, you have no idea how serious it truly is. His book of business was basically medical cannabis patient criminal defense. But the clients, over time, had slowly gotten used to the idea of actually having a business in the arena. So they didn't want to know any more about the consequences of arrest or sentencing guidelines. They wanted to know about contracts, trademark, business relationships, incorporation. And this 
criminal defense attorney, really didn't have the appetite to convert his practice at that point and was looking for a referral. So I opted to take it on as a youngish associate and it essentially snowballed uh, starting in the state of Washington with medical and then in 2012 with legalization. So I can tell you with full confidence and authority, my entire practice is cannabis. So don't hesitate to ask questions. Awesome. Uh, I'm Sam Kamen. I teach at the University of Denver, the College of Law. And uh, I uh, came at this from the sort of constitutional law, criminal procedure, uh, piece. I got interested in the federalism dynamics of the states legalizing or decriminalizing or authorizing, regulating that which continued to be uh, criminal at the federal level. Uh, I started writing about that and in 2012 when Amendment 64 passed in the state, Governor Hickenlooper asked me to be on the task force to implement it uh, and I, I served in that capacity. Uh, I am currently working in California with Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom and the ACLU to try to come up with some best practices for marijuana regulation there. This semester uh, that just finished, I taught a class called Representing the Marijuana Client, which deals with sort of the nuts and bolts of uh, representing clients in this area. A number of my students are here tonight. Can you guys raise your hands? Uh, some of them may need jobs, so <laughs> recognize those, those faces. And uh, I was uh, very pleased in May uh, to be named the first marijuana law professor in the country. The firm of Vicente Cedarberg here in town uh, created the Vicente Cedarberg Professor of Marijuana Law and Policy, and I uh, was, was honored to uh, be the first holder of that uh, position. And uh, I look forward to our conversation tonight and to your questions. Okay, so to start it off, since you're a law professor and you already brought up constitutional law, can you walk us through the federal versus state conflict of law issues concerning Colorado's legalization of marijuana, please? Sure. So there's one question tonight, apparently, because <laughs> we, could, we could talk about that for, for a while. Um, so what I hope, and I think my students who are here will, will recognize this sentence, the first thing I hope that most uh, lawyers will say to their marijuana clients is, you know this thing is still against the law, right? Uh, and we really saw that, and I'm sure we'll talk about the Coates decision that, that came down this week from the, from the Colorado Supreme Court. But marijuana is legal in now in 23 states in the District of Columbia for at least some users uh, and remains a Schedule I substance under federal law. That means that its production, its sale, its possession are all still federal crimes. And states really can't do anything about that. We can say we won't, uh, we'll repeal our own prohibitions, we won't work with the federal government to enforce its prohibitions. But the states can't do anything to undo the federal prohibition. So if tomorrow the uh, US attorney for Colorado decided he wanted to begin uh, arresting people who run dispensaries, arresting people who frequent dispensaries, there is nothing the state of Colorado can do to stop that. Now, that doesn't happen. That's not going to happen tomorrow. It's probably not going to happen in 18 months when a new president and attorney general take office in Washington, DC. But that doesn't mean that things are sort of perfect for people who uh, are in this area and are either in business or as uh, consumers. The fact that it's still illegal under federal law has all sorts of consequences. It means that Brandon Coates can be fired for using marijuana that clearly was a, a medical benefit to him in his off hours in a way that didn't negatively impact his employment. It means that uh, people can be denied student aid. It means that people can be denied their uh, federal benefits. It means that you could lose your parental rights. 
as long as marijuana remains illegal under federal law, there is going to be this tension. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk as we go through about the tax consequences, about the banking consequences. So much follows from the fact that the federal government continues to criminalize this, even if they're not ac actively putting people into prison. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that. Um, the way the conflict manifests on a day-to-day -day business for cannabis businesses, and you probably deal with this every day as an entrepreneur, is in really severe ways. Um, a lack of banking, inequitable taxation on the federal level. It's even gone so far that you cannot file for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy for relief in the federal courts. Uh, and also the Bureau of Reclamation. Does anybody know what the Bureau of Reclamation does? Yeah, okay. Federally regulated water. Who would have ever thought that this would have been an issue? But in Washington, where I'm from, with legalization, the conflict manifested with the Bureau of Reclamation saying, well, we kind of need to think about this. We may need to turn off the spigot because we can't be watering these illegal crops as the federal government. So that issue has been tabled. Legalization has gone forward despite that particular conflict. But the conflict manifests in so many differing ways for businesses. It goes well beyond the DEA coming in, cutting down your plants in a DOJ prosecution. I mean, would you agree with that on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, I deal with having my bank accounts closed on a regular basis and my personal bank accounts closed on a regular basis. And um, that all stems from that federal issue of it being uh, Schedule One illegal. And for me, it's really difficult because I've been a little bit outspoken about being in the industry. I've been on in the media. And so any bank that Googles my name, they close my account right away. And, and it's just a matter of time. So even on a personal level, being in the industry, it's, it's the biggest challenge and then the 280E issue is really the thing that keeps me up at night. So let me back up. We, we've heard about it this uh, briefly, but the IRS code 280E basically states that if you profit from an illegal enterprise, you're required to pay income tax and you are not allowed to deduct ordinary business expenses. So you have to pay income tax on gross profit which is sales minus cost of goods. It's not uh, sales minus cost of goods minus overhead, minus rent, minus payroll, minus electricity, minus your cable bill, minus your, all of those other ordinary business expenses. And so what winds up happening is you're paying income tax on your gross number, which is effectively double the income tax rate of any other business and it's crippling, and it's a, it's a major, major problem. Some of their ways around it, some accountants say, well, let's look at your business really carefully and deduct expenses that are ancillary to the sale of marijuana, but still maybe part of your business. So, for example, if you've got a, to use a round number, a 1,000-square-foot retail store, and 25% of that is a waiting room and 20% and of that is a back office and so much is storage and you actually only dispense marijuana out of 200 square feet. Some aggressive accountants are saying, well, let's try and write off 80% of your rent. We'll call 20% of your rent non-deductible and in compliance with 280E and we'll see what the government says. And to my knowledge, this hasn't been... Uh, tested enough or proven that, yes, that's a, a solution. So it's an aggressive strategy, and, and it's one that a lot of people use to get a little bit around the 280E issue. 
But the fear is the IRS comes in and audits you and says, no, you can't deduct any of that, and here's your bill. So that, that's the big fear. So there was a big change for us lawyers a year and a half ago. The Colorado Supreme Court came uh, down with a ruling that said we are ethically allowed to represent those that are in the marijuana field and give advice related to the legal marijuana business. Um, one of the um, components of that ruling, though, is that we as attorneys have a duty to be proactive in explaining the federal conflicts. And so before we take on a client, when we're talking with prospective uh, clients, we have to explain to them what you are talking about is federally illegal, even though it is legal under the state system, just as Professor Kamen said, it is federally illegal, and here are the consequences. You are subject individually and your corporation to criminal prosecution, including seizure. When I talk about it, I always give my, my personal story of when I was going into the city, I went to the acting city attorney and asked for a legal opinion. I said, would I be aiding and abetting the execution of a federal crime by signing marijuana licenses? And his answer was, well, of course you will. You're aiding and abetting. It's a federal crime. Anything you do that supports this federal crime is aiding and abetting. Well. Don't worry about it, Tom, no one's gonna go after you, but it is still federally illegal. And so the analogies that we all have are the funny ones. Home Depot, every single day, aids and abets when they sell extension cords and fertilizer to marijuana businesses. They're never gonna get prosecuted. XL Energy, every single day, highly regulated industry, every single day knowingly sells electricity to marijuana grow houses. They are technically aiding and abetting. Uh, the most extreme I've heard is that Governor Hickenlooper was aiding and abetting when he signed the enabling legislation for Amendment 64 that Sam worked on. Yeah, that came up in our, our meetings. One of the first questions someone asked is, are we aiding and abetting? And uh, the, the governor's uh, legal counsel, who was, the head of the, who was the head of the panel, said, no, 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 I, I've spoken to Mr. Walsh and everything is fine. Uh, but there is that concern. I mean, I, I think you got bad advice from, from the city attorney. I think that unless you have the intent to aid, you're not aiding and abetting. I think that you know, there are lots of people who know that what they're doing is facilitating criminal conduct, but those people aren't aiding and abetting. But you know, from a conservative you know, sort of risk prevention point of view, I understand why, why you were told that. But you know, I mean, this is the, the question I think a lot of lawyers have to answer, which is, how practical is the advice I give? Yes, it's illegal, but no, you're not going to be arrested for it. And, and I think that's where a, a lot of lawyers are, are, are puzzling this out. And Sam and I were talking about this before the event started. Uh, the advice I always give clients is, look, the thread on illegality never ends. It is illegal and there's nothing you can do about it. It, it, it runs through and it, it is continuous. Forget marijuana, but in anything, RICO, whatever the crime is, uh, the profits from that crime, it never ends. The question is enforceability and what the where the line is drawn on enforcement. And so what with the Ogden memo, the Cole memos, um, what the federal government has said is as long as the state system is compliant with the eight protocols that the federal government has laid out, and if you are compliant with that state system, then we are not going to enforce. And that's what ha what's happened over the last five years, that the federal government has not stepped in as long as you are compliant with the state laws.
And I'm glad you mentioned the memos. Does everybody know what we're talking about when we refer to the memos? The federal I, memorandum? I was just going to ask the audience that. Okay. Does, Does anybody anyone know? know? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Does anyone know what the call memo is? Okay. A few people. My a students couple. better be raising their hands. Yeah, you guys yeah, better there you go, raise Rodney. your hands. I mean, Rodney back there. <laughs> okay. So this is the interesting way that the federal government communicates not with the marijuana industry, but with its own personnel. And what's been happening for a long time, probably since Colorado fully regulated in 2010, actually before that with the first memo in 2009, is this policy dance between the states and the federal government really regarding states' rights in the context of the enforcement of the Controlled Substances Act. We have a series of memos that have been authored by U.S. Deputy Attorney Generals David Ogden and now James M. Cole, okay? And we have a fourth one that's been authored by Monty Wilkinson that addresses cannabis legalization on tribal lands. That's beyond the scope of this talk, but a whole other ball of wax. And essentially, what the federal government has said over time is that if you're in compliance with state law, you are not an enforcement priority for us. Then they've come back and said, well, we're just kidding. We reserve the right to enforce. If you're a large grow operation, you actually are a big priority, including the ancillary aiders and abettors and landlords and people who license you. And then in 2012, what do we have? Colorado, Washington, they legalize, very cutting edge stuff. And finally, the DOJ comes back with a relatively livable policy memo in August 2013. But really important to remember, these memos are from the top dogs in the DOJ, and they are addressed to U.S. attorneys in jurisdictions that have legalization, both medical and now adult use, on how to prioritize enforcement with these eight goals that Tom has mentioned, which range from basically no diversion of product to minors, not dealing with the drug cartels, ensuring that there are no guns and violence at the grow. So we have, you know, we have a matrix to follow now when states make law, and any cannabis business that does not abide by these priorities is really a liability, right? And what I will tell you all as a practitioner is number one, in your fee agreements, it better say in bold lettering, this is a federal crime. My advice is not designed to enable you to violate federal law, I'm telling you what state law is. And in addition, it would be very unwise of any of you to practice in states that do not have robust regulations. The number one offender, unfortunately, although I love the state, is clearly California. So if you have that California bar license, use it sparingly. I know I do. I am licensed there. Um, we see some really bad behavior there because California was one of the first states to go in 98. And we still have very old, antiquated regulations that really support a potluck model with no accountability, right? And that's not going to pass muster, at least not with Loretta Lynch in the driver's seat at this point. For me and, and the industry, the effect of those memos back in 2010 was we viewed it as a green light to go ahead and start investing money in the industry, start opening businesses, securing real estate, and uh, making a go at it. There were a couple of dispensaries prior to that in the state of Colorado, but they were very few and far between, and uh, some of them had been raided, and, and it was a really, really scary business to be in. Um, but when the first memo came out that said the federal government's not going to go after state-compliant businesses, that was really the, the starting gun for the industry to, to go for it. So that was the practical effect of the memo. So here's my next question. For people who are hoping to represent marijuana law clients, what are some of the barriers to entry 
for people who want to open and operate dispensaries legally in this state or in really in any state that's legalized marijuana? Well, you know, the trends are really varying and the barriers to entry are getting higher and higher and higher. If anybody's in Nevada, Nevada actually has medical cannabis, but it's a very good example of a state that has embraced a great barrier to entry model in addition to a local control model. If you want to run a medical marijuana establishment in Nevada, it really truly is akin to running a casino. Now, you juxtapose that with Washington. It's a very check-the-box process with our Liquor Control Board, now renamed the Liquor Cannabis Board. It's essentially like getting a liquor license, even though there's a lot of state oversight. And in Colorado, you guys can talk about how it works, but some of these states, the barriers to entry, liquidity is a huge requirement. Um, in Nevada alone, you had to have $250,000 in the bank. In Hawaii, it's going to be $1.2 million. The other kind of areas where states are beginning to really examine is residency. And we have a lot of protectionist methodology out there. In Hawaii, five years of residency. In Washington, 90 days. Nevada and Illinois don't have a residency requirement. Um, I don't think New York does either, and Florida doesn't either. But in Florida, if you want to operate a dispensary, you have to have been a nursery on the state registry with the Department of Agriculture for no less than 30 years. So this is a very exclusive club in some of these states. And you know, me, I'm a free market person. Uh, I'm not loving that model. But it is being born out of the federal policy memos that we really want responsible business people with skin in the game to run these entities that have high value contraband. We were talking just before uh, we started. I was in Ohio uh, the other day talking about the initiative they have on the ballot for 2015. And theirs, I think, is whatever is past protectionist. Uh, they say in, in the initiative that will be before the voters this year, uh, marijuana can be grown on 10 sites, and they are listed here in the initiative, sort of their meets and bounds and addresses are listed. Uh, the owners of those properties and only the owners of those properties will be licensed to grow in Ohio, and no one else will be eligible to uh, start a new grow for four years. So talk about barriers to entry. Theirs is sort of the highest imaginable. And Colorado seems to have had a lot of change lately regarding market entry, unless I'm wrong. Um, I think it was a two-year residency requirement. Is that still in play? That's still in effect? Okay. So one of the other big barriers to entry to keep in mind is, well, let me back up. There, there's really two ways to enter into the business. One is to get a license, get a location, and start one from scratch. The other is to just purchase one. Um, so you know, businesses come up for sale and you, your client can buy a, an existing dispensary. In that, in that case, they need to be able to meet the residency requirement, whether it's Colorado or wherever, and the criminal background check. And then they need a lot of dollars because these are expensive businesses. Um, to start one from scratch also requires a lot of dollars, maybe less, but requires a lot of other things as well. Um, in Colorado, for example, you have the most broadest law, which is state law. And state Colorado law requires local approval and that your dispensary or uh, grow or MIP be zoned properly. And if it's a dispensary, not be within 1,000 feet of a school, daycare center, drug treatment facility, uh, park, and, and some various other things. Other dispensaries. Actually, that's a local rule. Well, that's Denver only. Yeah, right. so the state of Colorado doesn't say you got to be a thousand feet from a dispensary. The city of Denver does, and so that brings me to local 
uh, approval, and every city is going to be very specific about that. So Denver also, in addition to all the state requirements, requires you be a thousand feet from another dispensary, um, and every other jurisdiction has their own setbacks. So one of the biggest barriers to entry of starting a new one in Colorado, if you can find a location, is meeting all the local setback requirements. The other barrier to entry is right now, the city of Denver actually has a moratorium in place for new retail, which is recreational marijuana businesses. So um, if you want to be retail, you can't oh, get a new one in Denver. Denver, you could still get medical. And then other jurisdictions have very quirky rules. Adams County, for example, just had a lottery and it was completely random and they pulled three names and um, they got the opportunity to try and make a go at it. The city of Aurora opened the application process, um, but their requirements were $400,000 liquid uh, in a bank or be able to show that. Um, and then they gave points based on a written business plan, operating plan, and security plan, as well as points for years experience in the industry. So it kind of came down to having been in the industry and putting all that paperwork and that planning together. If you look outside Colorado, a lot of the states are doing similar to what Aurora did, which is you've got to submit a plan and they're going to grade it and it's competitive. So that, along with the financial obligation, along with finding real estate, those are really the biggest barriers to entry. The biggest difference between Colorado and most other jurisdictions is that our industry popped up first and then 2010, the regulatory structure was imposed on top of it. In other jurisdictions, they're creating the regulatory structure first and then the industry is getting licensed. So my clients in Illinois, my clients in New York, uh, they have, they're facing the issues that Hillary is talking about where they have to have an enormous amount of money in the bank. They have to have um, a significant structure before they do anything. In Colorado, it is open because they weren't going to eliminate the industry when uh, the, the regulatory structure was imposed. So here, the true air, uh, barriers to entry are, number one, competition today, and number two, the now regulatory compliance. As far as the industry, in the beginning, there were 2,000 mom-and-pop shops that all of a sudden uh, were forming. These were folks that were for the, you know, 98% of them were growing illegally in their basement and they pulled it out. They got cheap warehouse space because it was the recession. They were paying a buck a square foot. There were no regulations and everyone was thriving. It was the heyday. Today, it has shaken out to an oligopoly. The, the folks that were doing it in the beginning may not have had true management experience before, and then as competition increased, as regulatory structures started being imposed, they faced real issues. And so as we, as we sit here today, um, the top five, eight uh, or so in the industry control about 40% of the market. Um, there are fewer and fewer small players. They are folks that have um, a geographic advantage. They're on the Kansas border, or they've got a great location in Vail, um, or they have a niche product, something like that. But it truly is shaking out to uh, a sector where it's big dogs that control most of it. The other thing is just compliance. 
Today, the regulatory structure is thick. You, the, the, the bigger dogs have um, significant teams that uh, are advising every single day about the seed to sale tracking system, about the cameras, what their placement is, about the font size for all of the signage that has to be up. These are things, I know it sounds like a joke, but these are the things that put so many of the smaller operators under because they just simply cannot keep up. One thing we didn't talk about was sort of capital formation, right? That you can't raise money the way you can for a regular business, right? You have a great idea, you sell part of it to someone, you get the capital to... Everyone that has an equity or controlling interest in a licensed business, at least in Colorado, has to meet the, the residency and background requirements, right? So that you can't just say on a national market, hey, I've got this great idea, people should buy part, you can't go on Shark Tank, right? And say, hey, you know, you, you, should, you should buy some of my business, it's I, a great idea. I had a idea. client that tried that, to try to sign up for Shark Tank. He was rejected, they did not want anything to do with it. But it's the, it's the same thing in Washington, where they can't fundraise, and it's really put these businesses at risk of undercapitalization. There's gonna be a high rate of failure for the mom and pops that can't compete. You know, and I think the one practical point that I would impart to you as practitioners is that if you're going to get into this and you're a corporate attorney, brush up on your administrative law practice, right? Because we are talking about voluminous amounts of regulation. Did anybody read the Maureen Dowd column about edibles in Colorado? I mean, if you're a New York Times consumer, God bless that woman, because what she did was unleash a torrent of regulatory paranoia, and it emitted from Denver, right? If I got drunk, I had I had a really intelligent person say this to me once. If I got drunk on a handle of Jack Daniels, right, I totally ignored the labeling. Would I blame Jack Daniels? I don't think so. I'd embrace my nasty hangover and move on. But this turned the tables on edible regulation, not only in Washington, Washington, but really nationally. And if you do not understand the confines of the APA in your state or how these agencies work and interact, you are going to be in trouble when you're advising your client. And states have learned it's not a one-man band. Departments of Agriculture, Health, Ecology are now getting involved, Department of Revenue. So. Also, for solos, I just really caution you, you're going to need a team or at least a referral basis to handle all of these moving pieces when we talk about regulation. Does everyone know what the Maureen Dowd column was? Okay. She, uh, <laughs> she came here and she ate an entire marijuana chocolate bar and she was like, woo! After being advised by the bud tender, only take this amount. And I'm pretty sure the dosing was on the packaging and the labeling. But edibles, you know, there's no science, there's not a lot of science behind all of this. The federal government monopolizes the research regarding cannabis, so states are guessing about the dosing, and we're gonna hit some bumps in the road, and I preach about products liability a lot. And if anybody read the Oregonian last Friday, now we know most of the cannabis in Oregon is chock full of pesticides. So good luck consuming that. And now we're gonna see this whole era of consumer protection rights evolve in the cannabis industry. So if you're gonna dip your toe in this, become an APA expert. It is the one way you can prepare yourself for the torrent of crap that is gonna come from the state. It's inevitable. So everyone was just talking about money before. How do you advise a client who can't, basically can't keep open a bank account for very long how do they manage their money? How do they do their finances? They're going to need a big mattress, okay? Um, and, a, and a lot of these people, I have seen industrial safes when they cannot get a bank account. It's terrifying. I mean, it feels like the 1920s or the 1930s. You may as well be dealing with bootleggers. 
Um, I tell them typically to manage the best they can with cash and to continue to try to get a bank account. Don't lie. Don't commingle. Don't jeopardize your personal assets. Don't jeopardize your corporate status. That's all they can do um, without propounding fraud on the bank. I don't know if you guys have a, a better solution. I'd I want to know, know what it. Brian does. What do you do? The real truth is it's a constant battle, and it's, it's uh, one of the things that's my biggest challenge. But I do pay my taxes, state sales taxes, in cash. I do pay my net payroll in cash. I pay my vendors in cash. I only accept cash at the store because I can't take a credit card. Um, and so whenever possible, you, you take cash and then you spend cash. Um, and uh, that, that's the truth of it. Um, and it's a challenge. And I have a, a security team and, you know, and, and we're careful. Um, that's a lot of it. If you get creative with your clients, uh, they may be able to have a bank account in other ways. So um, you got you to gotta kind of figure that out. This is one of those areas, and I think there are a lot of them, particularly here in Colorado, where the interests of the regulated and the interests of the regulators totally overlap. That is, it is in everyone's interest in Colorado that this not be a cash-only business. Uh, from you know, Brian's point of view, you know, I, I'm sure you're concerned about safety. You're concerned about the safety of your employees. Of course. We have armed guards. Right, and you, you know, I've heard people that operate uh, marijuana businesses don't always have the same payday, don't always pay vendors at the same way, same times, don't always take the same way home. Really sort of, you know, sort of, I, I would say paranoid, but it's not paranoid, uh, methodology. So it's really in the interest of the, of the regulated businesses that they be able to move out of a cash economy and move into uh, w one that's based on, on credit and, and electronic transfers. But from the point of view of the regulators, from the Department of Revenue's point of view, if they're tasked with tracking this money, being sure that all the taxes are being paid, being sure that only the right people are putting money in and only the right people are getting money out, a cash-only business makes that much more difficult, right? So this, from the very beginning, was an issue that the government had at least as much interest as the uh, regulated industry in fixing this problem. And here we are, whatever it is, three years after the, the passage of Amendment 64, we're not a lot closer to solving it. it, it again, it's one of those you know, sort of hangovers of the fact that this is still illegal at the federal level. So my clients have a variety of ways. Um, some are all cash. They have great accountants, and that's what they tell them. There are some who have uh, different accounts. They'll have a um, staffing company that is a legit business outside of the marijuana. It's uh, my, my phrase. I haven't coined it yet, but pot adjacent is the term I always use. Um, I want credit. Where's Josh? I want, I want credit for that one. They'll have a staffing company that runs everything, or uh, intellectual property is handled by uh, a separate company. Uh, banks that have now seen the federal government stay away and uh, follow this um, enforcement uh, idea of we're only going to step in if uh, state law is violated, and so there are banks that are loosening up. Um, I've got clients that will take cash and then send runners. They will send, they'll have people on their staff who will take a big pile of cash, run around all over Denver to every 7-Eleven and get $5,000 a pop worth of prepaid credit cards. Um, I've got clients that have ATMs. They will go, so Sam Kamen will uh, go and create Sam Kamen Financial Services, LLC, 
uh, go to New York, get a bank account, um, and he will own an ATM. He'll buy it off of Craigslist. He'll watch a YouTube video. Way to go, Sam. Watch a YouTube video of how to set it up, how to get it hooked, and then he'll have it in, their, in his marijuana store. It is separate, and people come in, they put the cash in, or they take the cash out, and then his folks put the cash in, and that's a way to um, cycle it. There are folks that are doing more and more now with electronic payments because banks are looking the other way, and then I'm not violating any client confidentiality. I'm allowed to say this. Um, the Fourth Corner Credit Union is a client, and they are hopefully going to get their um, master account granted to them by the Federal Reserve uh, in the next few weeks. We'll we see. Don't, we don't have any federal lawyers, right, in the room, okay? Um, because we want to speak freely. And, uh, you know, what we should say and what we didn't say yet was that um, the Department of Treasury actually issued its own enforcement memo from the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network in February 2014. And they recognize that the banking issue is an epidemic and that it is a public safety issue. This is a lot of cash. It is a great target for criminal activity. People have been robbed blind, um, held at gunpoint. It's gotten really bad. And some banks have opted to follow those guidelines. My firm represents three credit unions and two commercial banks in Washington that are following the guidelines. And they've even gone so far as to begin lending to these businesses. They've done that only because of the FinCEN guidelines, which by the way, not cost effective to comply with. So gets, guess who pays the bill on those bank accounts? It's our clients. And we're talking anywhere between $500 to $1,000 a month just to hold a bank account and have cash pickup. Um, and by the way, those guidelines also mandate the banks have to do the dirty work for the feds. They have to file suspicious activity reports on every cannabis business in addition to the minutia of having to monitor their social media accounts to make sure that they are not diverting product or selling to minors. So I don't know about you, but if I'm the person at the bank monitoring the dispensary's Facebook account, you know, I don't know about that um, as a banking job, but they are doing it in small numbers. Uh, it truly is a great experiment and it's working on our end in Washington. Yeah, so I have been offered bank accounts and the bank has said, we know that it's a marijuana business and we will welcome you. However, here's the fee and here's the paperwork and we need to know how many plants you grow and where they are and who your customers are and there's a per transaction fee and we need the ID of every single customer that ever comes in and this and this and this and this and you don't touch your money, we come get it out of a kiosk. Um, and so looking at all the stuff that they wanted me to do and the expenses they wanted me to pay, it, it just became like, great, thanks, but you know what, no thanks. I'd rather not have a bank account if that's what I got to go through. So a lot of the techniques Tom talked about were uh, really right on. I mean, I know anecdotally a lot of businesses use those techniques. And one of the problems, though, is the question, okay, that, that's great. You have this alter ego company that's a staffing company, but it's really you, you know, funneling marijuana money. Now, is that money laundering? And I think it is. And so we're forced into it, but that's yet another crime that's being committed. Right. And what happens to your, you take your money, you pay your licensing fees and your state taxes at Sherman Street here in Denver, and what happens to it? Well, this happens all the time. Every month, I yeah. pay the tax money, and I know that the state uses Wells Fargo. Right. They deposit marijuana money, <laughs> and that's okay, but I can't. So it, it drives the same me money. nuts. Right, right. I mean, that's, you know, the, the same money that the armored car services won't come and pick up from you and the Wells Fargo won't bank. 
once it touches the state, goes into Wells Fargo and goes into the I Federal Reserve System. I pay my mortgage and cash at Wells Fargo, and they take that money too, but I can't have an account there. And of course, you can pay the IRS in cash, but they will ding you what a 10% penalty if you pay in cash. That's being challenged, but it is, for now, the status quo. If you drive on I-70, you'll see one of those signs, you know, it's, it's someone who's a business that sponsors this mile of the highway. Metro Cannabis, right? They're there on I-70. They pay cannabis money to CDOT, Colorado Department of Transportation, and they accept the money. The state government, through all of these actions, uh, is, is money laundering for a drug dealer. And using the example that Hillary was using before, the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management under the U.S. Department of the Interior, Hillary is right. They, they say, no, we cannot sell federal water to illegal marijuana businesses, right? We can't do it. Uh, Pueblo County right now is so pro-industry that Pueblo County is buying water from the BLM, the federal government, laundering it and selling it to marijuana businesses. That, that is true, I went through that. I opened a store in Pueblo a week ago and part of getting the license was getting the water. Yeah, so that was a challenge, we had to deal with that. And I didn't realize that, well, this water actually starts off being federal water and that's, therein lies the challenge. That's a huge issue in the West is water. Well, and you know what's funny is that we've gone so far in Washington, if you ever come and visit us, you can go to the first and only government-owned dispensary in the tiny little town of North Bonneville. Um, the city itself was struggling so bad economically that it applied to the Liquor Cannabis Board and won a retail marijuana license. Apparently, they have really good purple kush all the time. Um, and they, they have a Twitter account. So, you know, if they're willing to embrace that, and this is a local government, and the corporate work was really kind of brilliant in how they structured it. Um, they do have a management company that runs it, but all of that drug money goes to Little Bonneville and to our Liquor Cannabis Board. Um, and we had the same issue with Bank of America. We will take the tax dollars but we will not take industry money directly. The extreme is that I can have a marijuana client that will pay me, we only take checks, uh, that will pay me, it goes to my firm, I get paid, I then give my, the allowance to my three daughters, my youngest Meg is seven, she puts that money uh, into a lemonade stand, sells lemonade to a kid across the street, and Emma puts it in her bank account. Emma is money laundering for a drug dealer in the eyes of the federal government. And again, the legal thread never ends. If they wanted to, the federal government can take Emma's piggy bank. Emma needs to be grounded. <laughs> <laughs> Emma needs to be careful. <laughs> so, so we've talked about the money. So after the money comes the taxes. Let's talk about 280E. Explain what that is, explain how people who, who own dispensaries, how they can manage their tax responsibilities. See, the one part of this anecdote that I want to take is just how it came about. And then you guys can talk about what it actually does. But I like to tell this story because I think it's really comical. 280E was developed in the early 80s really to prevent cocaine traffickers in South Florida, namely Miami, from deducting expenses for their AK-47s and their yachts. So Congress took a hard stance and it was the perfect war on drugs era being carried on by the Scarface rule. Correct. Um, and essentially what it does, and as we've already stated, is essentially illegal businesses cannot take traditional business deductions. They only get cost of goods sold. It's only violations of the Controlled Substances Act. Violations of the Controlled Substances Act. So strictly drug trade. Um, and the kicker is, what is the cost of the goods sold? It is the cannabis, right? And you guys can take it from there. 
Right, so I spoke about 280E earlier, and if anyone has any more specific questions about what it is and how we account for it and how we actually deal with it in practice, feel free to ask that. Um, but cost of goods sold is the one deduction that you are allowed to take. So that's the cost of your cannabis. If you buy it wholesale, the presumption is the wholesale cost is deductible. If you grow your own, the rent at your warehouse, the labor, the soil, uh, your equipment, all of that can be categorized as your cost of goods sold. And so you can deduct that. But then when you go to sell the cannabis uh, at the register, the employee making the sales transaction at that time, clearly they can't be deducted. Their, their, their pay can't be deducted. The rent um, that you're paying at the point of sale can't be deducted. And so, like I said earlier, what winds up happening is you're effectively taxed at about double the rate you otherwise would be. And yeah, this business can be quite profitable. It's not for everybody. I think that's a huge misconception is that everybody's making a lot of money in the industry and, and it's just not true. Um, and so if you're getting by and then you have to pay double the federal income tax, then uh, you, you might not survive. Yeah, this is massively problematic in states like Washington where you cannot do what they call vertically integrate. You cannot cultivate it, process it, and distribute it. We have a three-tier liquor model. So basically, you can produce and process. You cannot also distribute. Everything those guys are doing in retail is considered drug trafficking by the IRS in full violation of the Controlled Substances Act. 280 is fully applicable. So they really struggle when they talk about finding cost of goods sold, whereas our manufacturers have a much easier time with that particular issue. Yeah, and in a state like Colorado, where until recently vertical integration was required, that is if you grew, you had to sell, and if you sell, you had to grow, 280E has this perverse effect that it forces you to grow your business, right? So if the only thing you can deduct is the cost of goods, you have to put all your money back in the cost of goods. You have to raise the cost of goods, which means producing more marijuana. So the federal government has created this rule because we don't like drug trafficking. We're going to create this incentive for you to grow much, much more drugs than you would otherwise. Yeah, and that's, that is true. Um, and certainly, when we again, when we talk about how the federal conflict manifests, my clients are way more scared of the IRS than they are of the DOJ because of the DOJ policy memo, right? And the beauty of the separation of powers is that, you know, not only can the state do what it wants, but within the federal government we have separated powers, right? And sometimes these agencies are not on the same page about how they're gonna treat this particular issue. So my clients are very well aware of why Al Capone went to jail, which was why? Tax evasion. Tax evasion. It still remains true that my clients fear that principle. If this is gonna be considered modern day bootlegging with the IRS, they are way more scared of the tax man than they are of the DOJ. And I'll agree with that. I'm more scared of IRS than DOJ personally. So we've talked about the money, we've talked about the taxes, let's talk about the property. How can you advise clients who, who want to operate a dispensary, what should they be looking for in their commercial leases? You're looking at me. Um, I, write, I write above the law's pop beat and I did an article about this, about why the boilerplate SIBA leases won't cut it anymore because we're dealing with the consequence of asset forfeiture under the federal drug laws. 
Um, essentially, one of the consequences of violating the drug laws is that your property, whether it's used to perpetrate the crime or it is the fruit of the crime, can be taken by the federal government. And important to footnote, this is a civil action. This is not a criminal proceeding. And really, the property is the defendant. The landlord is a third-party claimant that is defending the property, and there's typically only one defense. It is the innocent owner defense. And what that means is that the landlord had no reason to know or didn't know in fact that the crime was taking place on the property. In a commercial setting with cannabis, when we talk about putting permitted use in the lease, innocent owner defense is rendered completely moot. Uh, and we have some very interesting developments with asset forfeiture going on right now in the Northern District of California, where they've had very aggressive federal intervention and prosecution. And one of the biggest forfeiture cases is taking place right now with Harborside Health Center, which is the largest dispensary in the US. They just made 30 million in gross sales last year. Uh, and this is in California. So very interesting developments there, but certainly when we talk about cannabis leases, you're going to want to accommodate for federal scrutiny which probably means some form of an escape clause, so that when you go in to negotiate with the feds over losing your property, you have some sort of leverage that you got the client out. Can they please back down, although it's not guaranteed to work? We see this in Colorado all the time. The Marijuana Enforcement Division will look at your lease when you apply for a license, and the first thing they look for is permitted use and it has to specify that the permitted use is either medical or retail, marijuana cultivation, production, or sales, or whatever that business is going to be there. So the, the use has to be in the lease um, in order to get a state license. Every lease I've ever signed, the landlord has always included an escape clause that says something to the effect that if this lease violates federal law, uh, you know, I have the right to terminate it. Uh, something to that effect, so that they can get out of the lease um, very easily if the federal seizure becomes an issue. The other part of leases are sometimes you're trying or your client is trying to acquire property that they want to apply for a license on, but they don't yet have a license. And so what happens if they're not successful in obtaining a license? And the answer is, if you can negotiate it, you put a contingency clause so that the lease is effective if the license is granted and there's an escape clause for your client if they don't get a license. And that might cost them some money you know, to, to hold the property or tie it up, but that's in a lot of the leases as well. Whenever possible, it's great to be able to own the real estate, so being able to buy it is, is better than dealing with a landlord because you know, they have escape clauses and whatnot. Another problem with leases is goes back to the idea that a lot of landlords, as soon as they hear marijuana, they might have a property that's retail-ready, $20 a square foot, find out it's marijuana, and now it's $35 or $40 a square foot. So you can't be afraid to negotiate really hard and get to something that's more reasonable. I don't mind paying a small premium, but I'm certainly not going to pay double uh, because there's a lot of expenses in this business that... that counteract the revenue that you hope to make. So those are some of the, the things about leases. We were talking about uh, aiding and abetting earlier, and I said, oh, that's not aiding and abetting because you, know, you don't have the intent to, to further that. When you're a landlord and you say, oh, you're, you're, normally I would charge someone $20 a, a square foot, but you're a, you're a drug dealer, I'm going to charge you 45 that person is aiding and abetting, right? Because they're benefiting from your criminal enterprise in a way that they wouldn't if you know, they, the, the person were selling tea. Right, so you know, I think from if if you're advising the 
the owner of that real estate, charging a premium to drug dealers is pretty dangerous, right? That if the federal government comes in and sees, you know, oh, it's a strip mall and you're charging twice as much to this one client as you are to the others, that certainly makes that person a much more attractive uh, forfeiture target. Yeah, the other issue here, again, repeat offender, the banks, right? Most of these properties are on mortgage agreements that have, were written 20 years ago. And the blanket clause typically in that document is there will be no illegal activity on this property if you don't want to forfeit this property back to us because it will jeopardize the collateral in so many words. We have had banks, national banks, local banks, as soon as they find out that a marijuana tenant has moved into the property, they are more than willing to try to foreclose. And they are clearly within their rights to do so. And it would be very unwise for the landlord to try to fight that particular foreclosure based on that mortgage agreement. And the most you can probably do is buy yourself some time if you're the landlord. For the tenant, the typical reaction of the tenant is, if you want me out of this building, or you're afraid of tenant revolt and your bank is giving you hell over it, you have to buy me out of the lease. Um, so there's certainly a transactional tone there that you have to be prepared to undertake where most banks are going to be very negative about a cannabis tenant moving in unless they're following the FinCEN guidelines and they're comfortable with the risk to the collateral because that's how they see it. So we represent uh, landlords and tenants in this. Um, and Hillary is right. Here in Colorado, end of 2011, beginning of 2012, uh, banks started calling um, their uh, mortgages. Um, big cottage industry has popped up. There are now mortgage companies that exclusively lend to marijuana landlords. Um, and those in the marijuana business bought out their landlords. For us, the lease, the first question is, do we represent the landlord or the tenant? Because they are very different. If we represent the, the tenant, first thing we do is, on any standard lease, remove all references to federal law. If we represent the landlord, we keep it in. We want the landlord to have that option um, if they need to exercise it. There are some strange things that are in there. One of them, if we represent the, uh, the tenant, um, all standard leases, no matter what you're going to do, has landlord access rights on it. Those are out the window. Uh, the landlord, they cannot step foot onto the licensed premises unless they have a badge from the Marijuana Enforcement Division. Um, so we put in special provisions um, on that side. If it's the landlord side, um, what happens? We, we create special provisions in leases if something happens to the tenant. So to use um, analogies, if, uh, if you've got a Dairy Queen and you're leasing from me and you bail, no big deal for me. I am all of a sudden in possession of a, a bunch of cold milk. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, if it's alcohol, if, if you're a restaurant, you've got a liquor license, I'm your landlord, and I evict you, or if you run off, it isn't that big a deal because we're protected by Colorado law. Every single jurisdiction in the country has special provisions for landlords on liquor. I can go to the liquor enforcement division of whatever state I'm in and ask for an administrative transfer of that license from the tenant to me as the landlord. I hold it and then I get a new tenant in and I transfer it to them. It works. I am then in legal possession during that transition of this federally regulated product, alcohol. There is no such provision under clearly federal law or under state marijuana law. If you're my marijuana tenant and I'm the landlord and I evict you or you bail, then I am in illegal possession of federal contraband. 
and there's nothing that can protect me. So we put in special provisions in our leases to protect the landlords. It has to do with our ability to go to the MED, to the Marijuana Enforcement Division, if there are issues. We create uh, waivers so that our tenants can't sue us if it is that we notify them, uh, if we notify the MED. Um, if we are the tenants, we want to make sure that we are protected from a, uh, an onerous landlord that two years later has a better offer and can throw us out for any reason. So for example, standard leases have um, uh, provisions in there about uh, uh, um, being a nuisance. Well, we put in special provisions about uh, marijuana and production and cultivation and sale not being a nuisance because we don't want the landlord to say, oh, I'm now going to make 10 bucks a square foot more, I'm going to throw you out. Uh, or hazardous materials, right? Every commercial uh, tenant in the country has Drano under a sink somewhere. We put in special provisions in there about marijuana, defining everything. Our leases are ridiculous. It, they are ridiculous because we want to protect our client, whether it's the landlord or the tenant, from these kinds of things happening. Yeah, and I think the last thing I would add is obviously the default section, developing a code of conduct, right, for both parties. Um, licensure is definitely not conditional. It's absolutely mandatory. And I will tell you a little anecdote. I actually nearly litigated one of these cases over the issue of odor. So if anybody's going to do an addendum to their leasehold to address odor, odor is subjective, very difficult to enforce against, but perfect grounds for an unlawful detainer, apparently. Um, I had a very smart, intelligent grower near downtown Seattle. He did his own HVAC. He was a licensed engineer. He did it perfectly. Um, and he was in a building that had multiple tenants in it, one of whom was next door to him was a pasta maker. After a series of raids in Seattle in late 2011, all of a sudden, landlords starting to get cold feet. And their attorney contacts me and he says, you know, Hillary, I'm going to do you a super solid here. I just need you to know we've got odor in this leasehold and we're getting reports, you know, specifically from the pasta maker. The smell of the pot is getting into the risotto. <laughs> and I thought, you have got to be kidding me. Uh, how do you know that? How are you determining that? What are the standards? And the problem was that the addendum was a piece of crap. Nobody had thought enough out to create standards for enforcement to deal with this subjectivity. So my guy's standing there with his fantastic grow next to this allegedly stinky pasta, and then opposing counsel tells me, I'm also gonna do you another favor. I want you to know something. I have heard the federal government is sniffing around this particular building. So if you want an expedited exit, we'll give that to you. And I said, that's very funny, opposing counsel, because if my guy's going down, you're gonna go down under asset forfeiture, aiding and abetting, and we'll be more than happy to cop to the government in that particular event. That led to settlement very quickly. And we ultimately convened on a different addendum with real standards. So when we talk about nuisance and we talk about industry-specific issues, odor should never be ignored. And we've seen lawsuits popping out specifically in Colorado over the issue. We end up putting odor uh, into, depending on the lease and depending on the issue, uh, but we say pursuant to applicable local standards, and the beauty in Colorado is there are none today. Again, if you can own the real estate, it's better. <laughs> uh, and freestanding buildings are good, too, because you don't have neighbors that are going to complain about odor. I have uh, stores that I'm a tenant, and odor complaints can evict me. And the reality is, while I would never normally agree to that because it is subjective, the reality is 
it's what you can negotiate and, and what you could get. So I would rather have a lease and, and have that hanging over my head than not have a lease and a business at all. So a lot of it comes down to what you can negotiate, what you could live with. And then I think what happens too is landlords will put things like, you know, if the odor is offensive, uh, your lease is terminated. And then what happens is they see that they're collecting your rent every single month. You're a great tenant. Uh, you're really not causing odor problems and you have a, a good longstanding relationship. But if you can avoid having that as a tenant, you're all the, all the more better. But sometimes the reality of this business is you've got to be very flexible and sometimes you've just got to accept terms that, that suck, frankly, and, and you just live with it because that's what this business is. So now that we've spoken about actual property, let's talk about intellectual property. How does that sort of thing work out for people who own dispensaries? Can you get a trademark or a copyright on a state level or a federal level? Has anybody had a Mr. Dank bar or a Ganja Joy? Oh, Chibachu. Okay. I only mention that because we've had actually infringement lawsuits litigated in the state of Colorado and Washington where entrepreneurs have really copied off of major Hershey's corporate candy, uh, and they were sent a very clear message that infringement would not be tolerated. And we can get to that, but who wants to... I've even heard a popular dispensary uh, was pursued by a popular coffee shop. Oh, right. You've had, you had first-hand experience with this. Well, let's, uh, who, who wants to deal with the USPTO issue, whether you can get a trademark or not? So that, the question was not, can we infringe? Because, of course, we can infringe others, but can we protect our brands? And the answer is not at the federal level uh, for marijuana, because marijuana is still federally illegal. And we say that a hundred times, but it's important. So I can't trade name or trademark the Starbuds name at the federal level for use of a dispensary. Dispensaries are illegal. But what I have done is I have filed for a federal trademark using the name Starbuds in connection with entertainment because uh, I was pursuing a reality television show. I've applied for a trademark for Starbuds for apparel, uh, for accessories, and some ancillary categories. And so that's really the best I could do at the federal level right now. At the state level, you could get a, a state trademark. But remember, I got a state trademark in Colorado. There's 50, 49 other states out there that, you know, I've either got to go and, and apply for one, and they're not necessarily free um, all across the country, or, um, you know, I just, you know, go after the states that I think I'm going to be in. But the answer is no, you can't trademark a brand for a dispensary or for an illegal product. Um, so go after some of the other categories using that name, and you know if it becomes legal, then you know apply for it. And you know Hillary mentioned sort of in passing that bankruptcy protection is unavailable to marijuana businesses because it's sort of a federal benefit, and to come into federal court you need clean hands, and if you're a drug dealer you don't have them. Um, it's going to be pretty similar to to going in even if you had a patent or a trademark. Can you go into federal court to, to enforce those? Tom mentioned earlier that our Supreme Court in, in Colorado has said that it's ethical for him to represent clients. 
the District of Colorado court came to a very different conclusion, right? And they said that, well, we know that that's the view of, and normally we, we agree with the state of Colorado on ethical matters, but we're going to take exception to that piece of it, and we don't believe it's ethical for Tom to come into federal court here and represent a, a marijuana client in federal court. Well, so even if you had a trademark or a patent, who could you get to enforce that for you? The other side would say, Your Honor, this, this person can't appear before you. He's, he's representing a drug dealer, and, and your ethical rules prohibit him from, from even appearing. It's, it's interesting because the trademark standard is lawful use in commerce, interstate commerce. We can't have that. That would be interstate drug trafficking. There's also a morality quality that the USPTO looks at. And they would still consider cannabis, at least in their opinion, scandalous and immoral. Where we don't have that is in patent. We do not have a morality standard in patent, and it's a different a different animal altogether. So you still see people filing for cannabis patents. I don't know how many have been successful, but it is a different animal. Yeah, as long as the, the item that they are patenting is uh, applicable to non-marijuana as well as marijuana products, they're okay. Think of a vaporizer so you can get a patent. The other thing is, even though, as they're saying, um, you do not have the availability of federal uh, copyright protection, there's common law copyright protection in Colorado. Then the funny thing that comes up, if anyone were to pull up right now the Marijuana Enforcement Division's list of all of the marijuana businesses in Colorado, you would have the same names over and over and over again because they have uh, Colorado in them. They've got leaf or bud or pot or high, anything over and over again. And under common law, copyright law in Colorado particularly, um, you can't get protection for any of those. So if my name is Colorado Green Leaf, I, I'm SOL because green is a descriptor, Colorado is the state name, and leaf, it's like uh, if you go to New York and you try and be New York's best coffee, you have no protection whatsoever because it's the location, it's a descriptor, and it's coffee, the name. You can't protect it. And so uh, we're, we're in the middle of a battle right now similar to this. But that's something to remember in this. It's not just federal copyright, but it is common law copyright within the state. And the other thing we see a lot is trademark licensing. We see a lot of companies wanting to go quote unquote national by having their brand in a state without actually being in the state, having to comply with those robust regulations. The issue though, again, is use within the state's borders. Gotta make a sale, right? And if it wants to be cannabis protection for the product, that becomes problematic. Again, we hit interstate drug trafficking. Paraphernalia, apparel, very different, um, and we're talking still federal protection. But I think it bears mentioning that the USPTO gave it the old college try a couple years ago. They actually opened the window for cannabis producer, processors, and retailers to apply for federal protection of their marks. It was open for four days. And basically the federal government came down and said, what the hell are you doing? This is illegal activity. You need to forfeit all of these marks, return the fees, and close the window. And it has not reopened since. But they did think about it. And again, each agency treats it differently. Do I think the USPTO is going to turn over a, a new leaf? No, uh, not anytime soon. But certainly our clients are waiting for that. So let's talk about the issue of the week here in Colorado. That would be the Coates case. A lot of people are talking about labor and employment law having to do with marijuana, the drug-free workplace initiatives. Has everyone heard of, of the Coates case, what happened this week? 
okay, half and half. So what happened this week was a ruling came down from the Colorado Supreme Court. A quadriplegic who worked for Dish Network, he had a prescription for medical marijuana, and he did it at home, not during work hours. He did it only at home. So he was subject to a random drug test at work. Of course, he tested positive on the drug test because he had been using medical marijuana. So they fired him. Even though he was using it off work hours, they said he was using it with quotes because he had THC in his bloodstream. Of course he did. Even if he had taken it a month prior, THC stays in your bloodstream for a very long time. So they fired him, and this week the Colorado Supreme Court said, yes, that's fine, you can fire him, even, if, even though it's legal in Colorado, because it's still illegal federally. So let's talk about that. All right. What I've sort of been saying about it is easy to sort of overstate what happened here. Really what the Colorado Supreme Court interpreted was a state law employment provision. Colorado is an at-will employment state, which means unless someone has a contract to the contrary, you can fire them for no reason. Um, there's an exception to that for lawful off-duty conduct. You can fire someone for no reason, but you can't fire them for what they do in their off hours as long as that conduct is legal. And the, this was sort of the smoker's bill of rights, right? That the, uh, 25, 30 years ago, there were companies that said, boy, we have more absenteeism and it's harder to insure smokers than non-smokers. Let's develop a policy of only hiring smokers. Cigarette companies sort of did some nationwide lobbying on this and got past a number of states these off-duty conduct statutes. Basically said you can't, you, you can't do that. The question and the sort of the principal question that was raised in Coates is, is this lawful off-duty conduct? And the court unanimously, and I think probably rightly said, no, it's not lawful because lawful means not prohibited by law and the conduct in which Mr. Coates was engaged is still prohibited by law, federal law, right? So that's just a reading of statute it now could go back to the legislature and the legislature could decide, did we mean, when we passed this long before we had legal marijuana in this state, did we mean lawful under state law or lawful under any law? There's a concern, and here we sort of could go down a dark alley, if Colorado said you can't fire someone for engaging in conduct prohibited by federal law, then we raise the specter of preemption, right? Because if Dish Network could show look, the federal government requires us to have a drug-free workplace, and Colorado law requires us to continue to employ Mr. Coates or people like him, even though we know he's engaged in this illegal drug activity, we can't comply with both laws. Federal law is preeminent, it preempts the state law. So that's sort of where, where we are now, um, and you know, I think the legislature is probably the next place that this, that this will go. I'm with Sam on this. I'll, I'll twist his words. Uh, there's a difference between what is right and what is legal. And uh, this opinion I don't think was right. Here's a guy that uh, is the perfect plaintiff in a case like this in every way. And is this the right outcome? No. Is it the legal outcome? Yes. It was a 6-0 decision by the Supreme Court, one abstention, um, and it was a correct interpretation of Colorado's employment law. Uh, and I agree with Sam completely. The real question is not about what happened with this, because it was the correct legal interpretation. The real question is, is the legislature going to take it up next year? I like when people twist my words and make them better. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with Tom agreeing with me. 
know what the weird thing was, and again, going back to the federal conflict, was that the National Labor Relations Board is going around getting after dispensaries that are union busting. So there's this really odd element here where that agency is so willing to take up the cause of the industry, and there are labor unions that have hemp and cannabis divisions. So when we look at somebody like Mr. Coates, I think the industry is hopeful that when we talk about the termination of jobs that affect employees' rights, right versus wrong, what's legal, that we're going to achieve some sort of change, hopefully on the federal level, because this is so outrageous in so many ways. But just keep that in mind. The NLRB is more than willing to go after a dispensary employer who's guilty of union busting and unfair hostile workplace practices. It's very odd. I think the, the biggest picture here is that cannabis has made huge progress over the last several years. But there is so much more work to be done uh, to get it fully recognized and fully legalized and fully regulated. Um, so everyone in this room who is becoming a lawyer or is a lawyer is becoming an advocate for cannabis, keep up the work because there's a lot more to do. Okay. So I think we're running out of time for the panel. So I will ask you each, what is the one most important thing that you would advise these existing marijuana law practitioners or future marijuana law practitioners? What do they absolutely need to know? Wow. Uh, I think, and, and Hillary touched on this, I think being a generalist is really important here, or at least having those connections. You know, when I taught my course and I was coming up with 14 topics to teach, it was really hard for me to narrow it down to 14 topics because we could have spent a whole day on real estate. We could have spent a whole day on environmental impact, on uh, state administrative procedures, em you know, employment, contract, insurance, tax. There's so many different aspects to this. As I've talked to lawyers around the state, people who never thought of themselves as marijuana lawyers, almost every lawyer in the state is having to educate themselves. So I'll just twist the question a little bit, which is even if you're not a marijuana lawyer and don't think of yourself as a marijuana lawyer, you have to understand a lot of these issues. I guess my one takeaway would be know your role. There is no such thing as a marijuana business attorney. It does not exist. What exists are business lawyers, litigators, real estate attorneys, patent lawyers, IP attorneys. It just happens to be in the context of the cannabis industry. So choose one, not a ton, and know it very well. Because if you spread yourself so thin and you don't have the staff or you're a solo or you don't have the bandwidth, you are going to get in over your head. The issues are too complicated. They are too plentiful for any one person to say, yeah, I do it all. And if that person is saying that, you need to run like hell because that is not possible and it should be a red flag. And I agree with you guys as well, and that was gonna be my advice was to, um, if you're a marijuana business lawyer, you're a business lawyer, and yes, it's in the context of marijuana. Um, I was just involved in a contract negotiation and uh, the lawyer on the other side, we were looking at an operating agreement and she's a marijuana lawyer, had never heard of a cross-purchase agreement and, you, you know, you need to be able to look at operating agreements, leases, real estate, every a aspect of business if you're going to have business clients. When I was a tax attorney, I had to understand a little bit about divorce law because divorce settlements came into which spouse 
uh, was really liable for this tax liability. I had to know about business law. I had to know about uh, various entities and, and what, how that related to this tax problem. Um, and so, yes, I was a tax lawyer, but I had to know all, about all sorts of aspects of law. And that's what I would, would advise on this. And, and it's okay that you don't know everything, but don't assume that you do. Make sure you get some help or collaborate because the issues are far more complex than, oh, I got this. I, I'm a marijuana lawyer and, and this is a marijuana client. Well, th there's a lot more to it. So be broad or get help. My biggest advice is lead your clients. Don't be led by them. Uh, in this industry particularly, you're going to have clients that are so excited, want to charge forward, and they'll tell you, well, no, 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 they said this. They said this at the Marijuana Enforcement Division, or the folks selling me this are saying this. Uh, you must lead your clients, not be led by them, because they are so anxious to move things forward, you will end up in trouble. Uh, you're the lawyer. It is your job to tell them what the law is. You must be prepared to say to them, look, if you do this, I cannot represent you, and I must advise you that what you're talking about is illegal. Folks try and fudge around the two-year residency rule. Folks try and fudge around so many other things. Uh, in the end, you are putting your license at jeopardy. No single client is worth it. And I apologize that I have to leave in a few minutes. Um, I've got pickup for uh, my, my oldest daughter. You've got M&Ms um, at your seats. That's uh, from our firm. I promise you they are not infused. Uh, they are straight M&Ms, um, so please feel free to help yourself. They're from Emma's drug cartel. Be careful. <laughs> so we're going to open this up to some questions. So. If you could go up to the microphone, say your name, wh where you're from, your affiliation, and let's do it. I'm going to steal this right now because I'm really interested. Before Novartis and InBev jump in and take over, where do we tell investors, both retail and um, large scale, but m more importantly retail, folks that are interested in this, how can they get invested in this industry safely, legally, how can they start putting money in this and how can venture capital get into this? And is there a space or are they at risk because of federal law and things like that? What, what are they, we talking about? If they're out of state, they can't do it directly. The place that they can do it is on the real estate side. That's happening all the time right now. Venture capital firms out of California, out of Illinois, out of New York. Uh, yeah, on the real estate side, um, management companies are up and operational. The intellectual property, there are folks that do hold um, patents for um, certain uh, uh, equipment that, you know, supposedly has the best grow operations. Uh, there are folks that have distribution networks. Um, so I'm buying real estate and picks and shovels. I can't buy in. Well, it depends on the state. Colorado's that way, Washington's that way. You could buy in in New York, Nevada, Illinois. Those are options. Um, but you, you said, how can they do it legally? They cannot do it legally. 
It is 100% illegal, and part of that PPM that you receive from the prospect needs to have a very healthy risk disclosure section that lets you know the consequences of your actions. Even investors, although it has not happened, in theory it could, they could be prosecuted under the Controlled Substances Act for, but just by virtue of the financial contribution. Um, and I think that that's the risk there. But certainly, the overarching theme here is if you're operating in a robust state, robust regulations, the chances of that prosecution go way down. But then the other question is, is it going to be profitable? Are these cannabis businesses profitable? And I don't think anybody out there could give me a reliable valuation on any single one of them. It would not be accurate. And we see what dispensaries, producer processors are going for in Washington. The most expensive one, the deal I've ever worked on, downtown, Capitol Hill, Seattle dispensary, 1.5 million. Compare that to a producer processor, tier one, which is very small, zero to 2,000 square feet of plant canopy in a remote location, $15,000. It's all over the map. Yes. Part of the valuation problem, too, is if you... Uh, look at a marijuana business, and this is assuming you could buy in, right? In Colorado, the residency requirement has to be met and other things have to be met. But if you're just looking to value a marijuana business and you look at some number times EBITDA, the problem is EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, amortization. The, the problem is 280E. So the taxes part is a wild card. So how do you value a business that that may have no profit after EBITDA, even though you're factoring some factor of revenue or some factor of EBITDA. So that's part of the problem as well. But when she said 50,000, like, so 5 million, I want to put in. That's not going to happen. It could happen, and people do it. Most of the money that's coming in is not from institutional investors because the risk is too high, reputational and criminal. Most of the money's from family and friends, but we've seen quite large financial contributions that abide by the rules. I mean, some of these guys are working with crazy capital. Now, that, again, hinges on a state with robust regulation. I would never advise an investor, and no offense to California, I hate to keep talking about this, but it's the poster child for what not to do. I could never advise that anybody put money into that marketplace in the current setting. Um, you know, you also have to look at what are the structures with which you're dealing. In California, typically nonprofit cooperative under statute or a nonprofit mutual benefit association. There's no opportunity for investment there. And the safest investment is clearly in the ancillary space. You know, Peter Thiel, founder, eBay co-founder, $7.5 million into privateer holdings with bra branding. Branding. That is, that is the safest, quote unquote, legal bet. Yeah. And the people that are investing in these cannabis businesses, again, mostly friends and family, or they've gotten such a good private placement, or they've got such a good grip on the actual finances that they feel comfortable. But it's, it's a risk assessment. The other thing, uh, warn your clients. Um, no one talks about the uh, Skolnick Disclosure Act. It, uh, it, is, it has been adopted by almost uh, every state across the country for the Skolnick Disclosure Act. Uh, so the idea is that if, if I'm a physician and you're my patient um, and I, I refer you to an MRI, 
I need to disclose to you that I own 10% of that MRI company. Um, every, every state has adopted some form of the Skolnick Disclosure Act. In Colorado, it's not only adopted under the uh, medical board, but also by all of the regulatory licensing. So if you're an accountant, if you're a dentist, if you're a physician, anything. Um, and so that's important for anyone that's in the medical field and that wants to invest in medical marijuana businesses. Okay, I have a question for the panel. Um, on the aiding and abetting, um, something near and dear to my heart as someone who does a lot of tax returns for this industry. You talked about Governor Hickenlooper on the way, all the way down to the state and local governments being possible co-conspirators and aiding and abetting. But my specific question is, aren't most governmental entities exempt from the Controlled Substances Act? I don't know that all state entities, I think you know, there's that exception for sort of law enforcement that's holding it in the, in the course of investigation or using it for, as a decoy or things like that. I, I mean, realistically, the state office holders are sort of the last, least likely people. And here, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about degrees of risk. And, and, you know, it's important to say there are no risk-free investments, but it's also important to say there are riskier and less risky conduct. So, you know, to that extent, you know, things like Excel Energy, an imaginative U.S. attorney could make out a claim that they are, when, when they, they set up a new, uh, new wiring, knowing what's going in there, they're aiding the betting. I think that's imaginative. I think that's unlikely to happen. I think it's unlikely to lead to prosecution. It all has to do with sort of tolerance for risk. No, I'm talking about specifically governmental agencies like the state of Colorado. Isn't the state of Colorado exempt from the Controlled Substances Act? Uh, I stumped the panel. <laughs> blanketly exempt, I don't think so. Okay, thank you. Next question. Hello, thank you all for being here. That was really interesting. My name is Matt Gressman. I, uh, I work for a consulting firm that does human health risk assessment. And uh, I guess my question goes to the sort of Marine Dow discussion that we had earlier and some of the issues that Hillary spoke about specifically with respect to edibles and uh, pesticide contamination. So my company does a lot of work um, doing expert witness testimony um, with respect to supply chain management and consumer products and um, you know toxic tort and that type of thing. So I guess my question is, in this kind of expanding field, what opportunities do you think there might be for collaboration with the scientific community um, with respect to, to that area in supply chain uh, management and consumer products? A lot, and from two different perspectives. Number one, educating our lawmakers and our regulators about that particular data because it just doesn't exist yet. In Washington, we haven't even been open for a year, so people are scrounging for that data where they can get it, where people are willing to talk about it. And then when we talk about liability-wise, developing standard operating procedures that ensure that we don't just have you know, self-made shoddy industry standards that go far beyond the threshold of state law, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. And I highlight this because we know the state sets the floor with packaging and labeling, but they will not catch everything. And in Washington, what we discovered after we read this expose about Oregon and the pesticides was that, yes, we have quality assurance testing, but pesticide testing is optional. And they leave it up to an honor system to the producers and the processors to label if they use a pesticide. I highly doubt that every producer processor is labeling properly because it's cost intensive. And hey, a little roach killer never hurt anybody in small doses. 
Um, that is probably the thinking there. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration, both on the industry side and educating lawmakers. So one of the things that Colorado has done, and it rolled out in uh, January of 2014, it was called MITS, which is a marijuana inventory tracking system. They've now changed it to metric. Um, and that's the tags, the plant tags, the RFID tags, the package tags, and the, uh, the manifest, the transfer system. And what it does is it sets up a chain of custody for all the cannabis from, we call it seed to sale, but it's really from a clone through its production cycle. Um, and then if it gets put into a, an edible, um, the, the grow that it came from, the batch number, that, at least Colorado now, is tracking all of that. So there's a, a chain of custody. So you could go back and let's say a consumer gets sick um, because there's, there's a pesticide residue. Well, the edible company didn't grow that marijuana necessarily. They just took the cannabis, turned it into oil, and, and made a cookie. Um, and so maybe it needs to be traced back further to the grower. Colorado now has the ability to, to trace it back. They have a full chain of custody. Um, and there is testing required at certain stages, and it's going to become more robust in Colorado. I doubt any other state has anything like that currently, but we're the model, and I think that is going to be, um, to some extent, copied. And I think if you look at other industries, food industries, every box of cookies at King Supers has a, a batch number and a UPC code, and it can be traced back. And that's how recalls are issued, because we know this batch number had some problem. And so I think that is a very valid point and has been something that's developing with as this industry develops. And, you know, just the other thing to add to your question, employee exposure to toxins, pesticides, nobody is talking about this. Nobody is even thinking about this. And most SOPs do not have protocol. Um, it's a really scary thing. And when we think about asbestos, all of these kind of toxic torts that manifest 10, 20 years from now, this will come back to haunt some of these companies. So there's a tremendous opportunity for education. Uh, and for any reporters in the room, I would love to know the levels of exposure that employees are going through and what they're working with, because it's going to be very telling for health place work policies in the future. I'll bother you by email later then. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, my name's Dave. Uh, I guess to use your term, I'm a business lawyer in the cannabis context. Uh, I wanted to ask a question that kind of uh, touched two parts that you guys spoke about tonight and sort of bridged them with a theoretical. Uh, you talked about the whole mom and pop thing and people started to get pushed out of the industry. And so my, my question is, and then you also mentioned that uh, we need to keep going and, and, and get things regulated at a federal level. And I would assume what that means is dropping from class from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. But my worry is that if we drop from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, that opens it up to Big Pharma. And then everybody in this industry is mom and pop. So I kind of want to know what you were thinking when you were saying that we need to push forward with regulation and, and how you foresee it being dealt with so that the people who have, you know, hoed that, tar that hard road and, and, and towed the line in Colorado, in Washington, and wherever else, what happens to them when, you know, Pfizer decides that they're going to get into the business once class two? Well, I think to some extent that might be a good thing. I mean, I, I'd like to retire one day and sell out to Big Pharma, maybe, you know. But 
but but I think uh, to a large extent, if you look at Colorado, um, the state also regulates medical and retail marijuana. And so I hold a license in the city of Denver, and I can't have any competition within a thousand feet because that's a, a city ordinance. And so my individual mom and pop, and maybe Starbuds is now not so mom and pop, um, but you know that real estate and that license is still very valuable at the state level, even if the feds said, okay, it's it's not even a classified substance anymore; it's Schedule Two or or whatnot. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with the state licensing, and that limits um, those businesses, and it, and it ensures the value of the business, at least until that changes. I don't see that changing in the foreseeable future. You know, the state wanted to limit the industry to some extent, and they've done that through zoning and, and various other things. I, I may have limited that a little bit by accident. I meant when it get, if it became scheduled to federally and then all of a sudden in Nebraska you could have thousands of acres open up to uh, cultivation, there's no, no, it doesn't matter what your Denver license is going to say. It's, it's more of an issue of uh, just economy of scale, right? Right. I, I, so I, I think there are a couple answers to that. One is if it were to move to Schedule 2 and were actually treated like other pharmaceuticals, it would be a disaster for everyone who's licensed in every state now because it would end up in pharmacies and not in dispensaries, and basically everyone that's a licensee now would be put out of business. So if, and you'd have to have, like, FDA trials right, you with have to the do, cannabis. Yeah, It'd be it, awful. It would, yeah, it would change everything. It would destroy the current model. I, I think a more realistic sort of relatively near future is taking marijuana out of the, the scheduling, treating it like alcohol. Um, and then, you know, we sort of have your question about, well, is it big tobacco or big pharma, uh, big agra, who gets involved in it? And then I think, you know, it, it, the industry looks nothing whatsoever like it does today. I mean, I always talk about hops, right? Hops are, the U.S. is, I think, the world's number one or number two producer of hops. Hops aren't grown all over the country. They're grown in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. They're grown on a relatively few number of farms, and they supply all the beer makers in the country, right? Marijuana is going to be that model, whether it's Pueblo, whether it's uh, Mendocino and Humboldt in California. There's going to be places where it can be grown, you know, in economies of scale, outdoors, and you're going to have a relatively small number of producers producing for the entire country. Yeah, and s states are battling this out, this cultural choice. Is it a medicine? Is it a party drug? Is it the pharmacy? Is it the liquor store? And the only other model we can look to is, is what? Alcohol prohibition. Right? There was an entire era of alcohol prohibition where when it made a comeback, what was it first? It was medical. And then eventually, it was adult use, right? The difference between the two was that we had already had the machinery, federal government just put a drape over it. We're literally starting from the bottom. And if the states can beat the federal government with these adult use models, I don't think Schedule Two is in the cards because it would be so political at that point. Then I think it's just full on decrim and then it's free market. If Altria wants to come and buy you out or Philip Morris wants to come and buy you out, that's fine. At that point, maybe you can compete as a small shop that's had market share for a very narrow window. But I think it's going to be about the states leading the federal government. When it was alcohol, we got the 21st Amendment. States are in charge, right? No holes barred, patchwork quilt. We are dangerously close to that. Not in that number yet, but we're getting there. California and Nevada are set to go in 2016. Who knows after that? We already have four in D.C. We're catching up. And I think people are going to recognize that the recreational model may actually surpass the medical model because it's more access. And even if it goes to huge farms, 
um, you know, if you look at the alcohol model, still there's microbrews. Look, we're, we're in a brewery here that is still existing in a world with Anheuser-Busch that produces, you know, probably a million times what this brewery produces. So my 5,000 square foot warehouse might become the microbrewery of cannabis and I grow, you know, some, you know, just very connoisseur grade cannabis and I survive as that model. So who knows what, what's actually gonna happen? We don't know. Thank you. The gentleman in the back first and then the woman in the front and then we will be finished with questions. In a world of microbrews, which you just mentioned, and SD sales, where do you see the future legality of the home growers and you know, farmers market type of business, legality, feasibility, and relevance in the industry? Obviously, you guys just answered a bunch of these questions, but that is the world we live in. You can go on any fancy Wash Park Street in America type San Francisco, and there are farmers markets everywhere, and home businesses, and where do you see the feasibility of that? I think that the cannabis industry can very well simulate the uh, alcohol industry and other industries as well. Um, the only thing that's so unique about cannabis right now is that it's illegal and we're operating in this gray area at best. And so all these crazy opportunities exist for guys like me and, and other people. But really, in its abstract, cannabis is a plant just like a lot of other plants that are commodities and sold. And so there, I think there's room for all kinds of models to coexist in the future. My state hates home grows. Um, they have completely eliminated them as, with the exception of... Sure they have. Yes. With the, with the very small exception of qualifying patient grows that will not have an effect on the overall economy. My state saw home growing as a threat to regulated cannabis economy because it would make our businesses less competitive because of market diversion. There's a tremendous amount of suspicion on the, straight, on the state level about home growing. Illinois doesn't allow it. I think Nevada might. Florida definitely doesn't allow it. I don't know about New York, um, but we had a war over medical marijuana in our state, and in my opinion, recreational use has won. And they're pushing medical into the recreational market, and they're essentially gonna combine them with certain tax breaks for patients who today could be growing 15 plants and producing 24 ounces, that's a pound and a half, that's a ton of dope, okay? That is gonna go away because it was threatening to undermine the regulated system. So depending on the state, home grow may not be an option. Seems yeah, very un-American. I know. Well, and people have big issues with it because they're saying, come on, man, I want six plants and I want to grow for myself. I like a certain strain. Big boys don't carry it. I have to pay a ton to these artisanal growers. Why not me? And this is government stepping in and saying, basically, we know better than you and you're going to give in to the proclivity to divert. We don't trust you. I that, would, that's I would, what's happened in Washington. I, I would just say that, it, at least in Colorado, one of the, the real concerns has been not the individual home grower, but people combining and saying, oh, well, we're a cooperative. The 10 of us got together, and these are our 60 plants. So the 20 of us got together, and, and these are our 120 plants. And it, it is difficult for the regulators and for law enforcement to figure out what's a home grow and what's a black market grow. And I think that's the concern much more than the person with six plants, one person with six plants in their basement. And some states are going to break the mold and they're going to allow for both like Colorado does. But Oregon, in its initiative, Measure 91, that legalizes all cannabis for adults 21 and up, up to an ounce, they allow for home grow. They don't take issue with it. And they have a well-entrenched medical community and they're willing to stand behind those growers to abide by the system. Washington, we had a very different relationship with home grow. Thank you.
So my question is, um, I'm an attorney and mediator. I'm not looking to change careers, but Brian, you did change careers. Um, you left behind what I assume was a successful law practice, something you had invested a lot in, um, and now you're doing something totally different. And I would just like to hear about your experience and what some of the challenges and rewards are with your current occupation. Yeah, so I was practicing law for about five years, and I was on a really great career path. Uh, I kind of moved up within the firm I was at and doing really, really well. And when I told my parents that I was going to leave my law practice to grow marijuana as a caregiver and, and who knows what from there, uh, of course, there was a lot of uh, pushback because you went to law school and you spent all that money and you have student loans. Uh, but for me, cannabis was something I really believed in. Being an entrepreneur was something I always wanted to do. I, I really thought that one day I would open my own law practice and be an entrepreneur that way. Um, but I saw this as a, a, what I thought was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I figured if it doesn't work, I'll go back and I'll practice law. That'll always be there. And, and this, you know, this was a timing thing. And um, it was extremely challenging. I went through periods of a lot of uh, self-doubt and doubt that, that this was the right thing and that this was going to work. And, um, but I, you know, I just worked really hard at it and believed in it. And today, looking back, I, this was the best thing I ever did. I mean, um, it's been lucrative and, and I love what I do and I'm really enthusiastic about it. So it's worked out, but it was really scary for uh, that first couple of years were really, really, really scary. Do you think being a lawyer attributed to your success? Definitely has helped a lot. When I first uh, submitted my first business application to the MED back in 2010, I hired uh, or I worked with Rachel Gillette and she looked over my application and we, we talk, I talked to various lawyers, Cliff Black in Colorado Springs, and I kept hearing the same thing over and over. Well, it's a gray area, this, and we don't know, and we don't know how it's going to play out. And, um, I decided to just say, you know what, these lawyers don't know any more about this than I do because it's the starting point. So I read everything I could read, and I, I've been my own lawyer in the industry all the way through. And even today, I do all my own work, and it's been really helpful. Thanks. Sure. All right. So we're going to wrap this up. I want to thank all of our sponsors, LexisNexis. The National Cannabis Bar Association. We couldn't have done this without your help. I want to thank Legal Talk Network. Look at this beautiful space. I want to thank Barrels Brewery for staying open for us. And by the way, they're still open for us. We yes. still have a tab. So please come hang out some more. And most of all, I want to thank each of you for sharing your wealth of knowledge with our audience. And I want to thank our audience. Thank you so much for coming. This is our first marijuana law event, and you made it a huge success. It was standing room only. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation on Legal Talk Network. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.